brought to you by Prep Matters and the Self-Driven Child. Yeah, it's a it's terrifying to be on your own and it's exhilarating. And I hope that, <laughs> you know, I'm trying to acknowledge the terror of no longer being in the care of other humans, meaning an infant, a toddler, a child whose hands are held constantly or who's literally carried around through life on someone else's shoulder. No, you're a freestanding adult. Yeah, that's scary. But guess what? It's also freaking awesome <laughs> in charge of your own self. I mean, one of the early chapters ends with, oh, this adulting thing, it's delicious. How important are standardized tests? Why isn't my child doing well in school? Do you need a high school diploma to apply to Harvard? Education is one of our most cherished institutions, but it can also be one of our most exasperating. And it's where almost all of our children go from toddlers learning their ABCs to critically thinking adults stepping out into the world. I talk with experts in helping teens and tweens navigate the transition to adulthood in order to bring you the tools you need to help grow resilient, self-driven, and successful young adults. I'm Ned Johnson, and this is Prep Talks. Julie Lithgott-Hames believes in humans and is deeply interested in what gets in our way. She's the New York Times bestselling author of the anti-helicopter parenting manifesto, How to Raise an Adult. Her TED Talk on the subject has more than 5 million views. Her second book is the critically acclaimed and award-winning prose poetry memoir, Real American, which illustrates her experience as a Black and biracial person in white spaces. A third book, Your Turn, How to Be an Adult, is out just now. Pick it up hot off the presses. Nothing better out there. Julie is a former corporate lawyer and Stanford dean and holds a BA from Stanford, a JD from Harvard, and an MFA in writing from California College of the Arts. She serves on the board of Common Sense Media and lives in the San Francisco Bay Area with her partner of over 30 years, their young adults, and her mother. Julie, welcome. Ned, thank you so much. It's wonderful to be with you, my friend. It's an honor to be on your podcast. Oh, you're very kind. This, oh man, what a book! What a <laughs> book! So, so, so. Let's start with 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 the obvious question. I know there's a great story you talk about this in the book of why this book now, because you know five million people watch your TED talk and like, okay, we got how to raise an adult, but what's next? So, so, so why now? Well, I think my publisher had the very response you just articulated, which was, wow, this one worked. Let's have a sequel. And I signed a contract over four years ago for a sequel to How to Raise an Adult. There was nothing else to the contract language other than that, meaning we didn't talk about what we meant by a sequel, who's the sequel for, what's it about. And um, over the subsequent years, we began to explore that. My publisher said... um, So this will be a book for parents of uh, adult children. And I said, no, no, no. The author of a book on the harm of overparenting is not going to exacerbate those problems by writing a book for parents of quote unquote adult children. Like, are they adults or are they children? I'm not somebody who uses those two words together. Oh, good for you. um, So I insisted that this book will be for young adults who feel inadequate at the task of adulting, which is something millennials began talking about. I wanted them to know you're not inadequate at all. You have exactly what you need to step into this adult life. So, um, uh, it's a response to the zeitgeist in um, in the millennial generation, 
Um, and it's the language, the voice is really me attempting to be the dean that I used to be. I used to be a college dean where my job was to give a damn about my students, care deeply about what they actually wanted of this life, not what they were supposed to do or other people expected, but simply to listen well and kind of just be present um, and hold those dreams and fears and sort of put a mirror up to them so they could see themselves more clearly. And I attempt in this book to, to, to write in the narrative style that emulates what it would be like to be in conversation, which is hard to do in a book. But that's what I struggled with for years, finding the voice so that I could actually write this book. I will add, I never felt like an authority on adulting. So I was constantly ducking the sense that, you know, I would write with an authoritative voice. Um, I wanted to bring in um, third parties. I wanted to tell about adulting by telling the stories of over 30 other people. And my publisher said, no, 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 your readers want your voice. And we arrived at this compromise genre mashup, which is some memoir from my lived experience, some self-help tips, and then some profiles of over 30 other humans who in the aggregate demonstrate an adult life is lived in innumerable ways. It's, you know, everything is possible. There's no one path. And so we've, we've, uh, that's, that's the outcome, but boy, hmm. was it an arduous process. I, you know, when I read in the book, I, 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 I could picture the struggle in this. And, and I have to say that those two goals of one, of having your voice come through the way you talk to and have talked to so many young people um, um, for a career um, and really getting at the complexity of life and its messiness, but also all the sort of the richness of the past forward. I, I mean, you just, you nailed, you nailed both of those. And so it's, um, <laughs> I, 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 well, I mean, it's, it's so, it's so wonderful because, um, you know, for, for young people, you know, life, it's, it's, it's hard. It's scary, right? I, you know, I, I, you're that, <laughs> I forget the boy, I forget the guy's name. The spreadsheet boy is the one I keep thinking about. Yeah, I didn't you know. give the name in the book. Oh, yeah. then that explains. I feel you're, you're letting me off the hook. I appreciate that. Oh. Um, and thinking how easy it is to make up a spreadsheet of what the perfect life would look like. Right. But life yeah. is so much messier. And, and one of the things that I love, you know, is, is your point, you pulled in so many voices and we'll talk about that more and so many ex people who are experts in this, in this space, but your humanity comes through and, and the, the, um, the candor, the, the transparency to the vulnerability, which I, I know we will talk about too, uh, that you come through makes it so much easier for people who, you know, who are figuring stuff out to go, Oh, no, no, she's not, she's not painting a, a picture. She's, she's living the, 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 the messiness that we all are. Yeah. You know, it's kind of like I'm on this trail with you and I'm just a little bit farther up ahead. So I can hmm. kind of point out some places where you might trip, some places where you might go careening off the edge some moments of wonder and beauty that you won't want to miss. I'm not trying to know more. I'm just older and I've, and I've trodden this path of adulting, of adulting for a longer period of time. So I do try to write with this humility and vulnerability. I know mm -hmm. if I put on the page, this is some of the shit that I did. You know, this is some yeah, of the yeah. I've had. The reader then feels, okay, it's okay to fail. It's okay to falter and fumble. It's okay to be ashamed. It's okay to be bewildered. It's okay to be scared. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's terrifying to be on your own and it's exhilarating. And I hope that, <laughs> you know, I'm trying to acknowledge the terror of no longer being in the care of other humans, meaning an infant, a toddler, a child whose hands are held 
constantly or who's literally carried around through life on someone else's shoulder. No, you're a freestanding adult. Yeah, that's scary. But guess what? It's also freaking awesome <laughs> in charge of your own self. I mean, one of the early chapters ends with, oh, this adulting thing, it's delicious. You'll want to. And I think that's the piece that might be missing for millennials, which is, you know, wh why have we failed as their elders to live an adult life that looks enticing such that they want it. You know, my parents had cocktail parties and they went out and did events and they played tennis and they millennial parents were just there. Like, have you done your homework? Like, of course they don't want to adult because we've made it look boring and stressful. So I'm trying to just kind of return us to an era of Adults have relationships. Adults have work that matters. Adults have hobbies. Adults have friends. You know, adults decide what they're going to do because they want to do it, not because they're trying to please some other set of adults. Hmm. <laughs> I feel like they cut. It's a wrap and leave it right there. That is, uh, I love it. I, I, lo I love that. You know that, and that the that we all know from the from the science of stress that the same things that are stressful are, are the same things that are that are, are thrilling. Uh, it's it's great. Let, let me back up for a moment and just just for to, to frame up for people who might be sort of new to this con, maybe to the maybe parents listen to this podcast. Kind of, can you in broad outlines ex just explain for us what you mean by adulting and some of the you know the kind of concrete pieces of that. Um, and, and obviously you folks, you got to get the book because it, it, it it's, the, it's, it's certainly the book that I wish that I had had when I, you know, left college and left home and like, now what, um, and you can read it chapter by chapter, you know, it's, uh, uh what, what are all those books, uh, idiot's guide to, to, you know, coding or something. We can have an idiot's guide to, you know, um, yeah. to life here. Yeah. So, so walk us through adulting and then some of the concrete parts of that. Yeah. So first of all, props to millennials for creating the verb adulting. None of us spoke this way before they came around. I'm afraid to adult. I'm scared to adult. Adulting is terrifying. This is a response to that plea and that plight. Um, I define adulting as a period of life between childhood and death. Okay. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> a long swath of healthy decades, but that's what it is. You're no longer a child, meaning completely cared for and under the responsibility of other humans. You are this freestanding human, barring significant mental health challenges, significant physical disabilities. You're kind of able to look after yourself. That's what adulting is. And um, many of the books, if not most, if not all, except for mine, on adulting, put adulting into a series of tips 10 mm. tips for adulting, 101 tips for adulting, 468 tips. And a lot of these tips are things you can actually learn by watching YouTube videos. <laughs> so I'd say that right up front in my book. Okay. Like a, what I've arrived at, which I think um, felt new to me as I was doing the work was adulting is three things. So we've got what it is in terms of when it happens in your life between childhood and death, then how to be good at it, how to enter it and sustain yourself in it is three components. You have to want to be an adult because if you don't want to, then you're going to be glad that other people are making your decisions and solving your problems and telling you what to do. You have to have to be an adult. If you're so wealthy that your family or the people your family hires to handle you are handling everything, you may never have to be adult, an adult regardless of how much you want to. The final piece is learning how, and those are the tips. 
you know, the 10 tips, the 101 tips, the 468 tips, the YouTube videos, how do I change a tire? How do I file my taxes and everything else? Okay. I touch on those things, the tips in my book, there's right, a right, lot right. of practical stuff in every chapter, but why do folks not feel the yearn to want to? Why might folks be impeded in having to? Those I think are the less examined elements of the inadequacy that many millennials seem to feel. And I'm not blaming them at all. I'm very compassionate about folks who find themselves in that place. And this book is this, I hope this very compassionate response to that, which is like, yeah, I get it. There, there are valid reasons for why you're stuck in these areas, but you got to. So I'm here to try to help. Well, so I love that. That's so clarifying because I think it's easy for for any of us, you know, and and for for older folks, parents who are trying to help kids, to 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 focus most on the how to, on all the mechanics, as opposed to getting to the, the wanting to and having to, and what may stand in the way of those things. And so it almost feels like you're you're backing it up a layer or three um, to kind of get at the structural issues as opposed to the details. But also, since you you t- talk so well about um, Carol Dweck and mindsets, it's almost like a, like this is the mindset of adulting. And if you if you haven't had it, if you wonder why you're struggling, this is important. So let's spend some time talking about it. Do I have that about right? Beautiful. Yeah, I love that you just knitted those things together. I do bring up Carol Dweck in early on in the chapter that is the anti-perfectionism chapter. If there's one thing every millennial and older Gen Z has heard in childhood, regardless of where they live, regardless of their family circumstance, it's perfect. Great job, buddy. Every single thing they did, perfect, 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 perfect. We have unwittingly put perfect out there as just sort of the the presumed destination. And it's not, you know, perfectionism is the enemy of mental health and wellness and um, leads to procrastination and leads to a sense of inadequacy. And so I've got this chapter, I think it's chapter three, that's like, you're not perfect. You're here to learn and grow. And that's where I cite Carol Dweck's work on growth mindset, which means I, you, you realize my efforts will enable me to get better and stronger and more capable at this thing rather than I am innately good at this, um, and um, which, which turns out to be a fixed mindset, which impedes people from actually taking on greater challenges and stepping outside their comfort zone. So yeah, absolutely. And, and, you, and I, you know, that idea that that quest for the perfect life, particularly, you know, social media didn't exist when you and I were, were this age um, and, and sort of a curated life rather than a lived life. Uh, I mean, one of the, the one of the really lovely parts that, of, of the book, you know, you're sharing about your experience and also all of these um, these younger folks who are kind of to confide in you um, is all of the, the the messes and the way that life is messy and. Um, that that's fully a part of life, but also that things are for so many richer because of that. Um, and you know, perfectionism, <laughs> you have, the, you have that line about if you, if you live in your parents, uh, if you, if you always stay in your comfort zone, meaning only where you're proficient or perfect, would you say you'll end up, you'll end up dying in your parents' basement? <laughs> you'll end up on a couch. Right. Yeah. There's a few lines to it, but yeah, that's the gist of it. It'll be yeah. a beautiful basement, I'm sure, but a perfect yeah, basement to die. That's not living, you know. Um, when we stay inside our comfort zone, we are by definition comfy, comfortable, safe, and happy there. But that is not living, 
Living is an active verb. Mm -hmm. We are here to make use of our bodies, our hands, our minds. We feel good when we make things with our brains, with our hands, with our effort. That's how we sustain a mental wellness. Like I'm doing stuff, right? It's agency. I'm coping when things go badly. I'm developing more resilience, right? Sitting on your couch and just being attended to by others who feed you and pay your rent and look after you and handle the stuff of life contributes to a malaise that folks have labeled learned helplessness, which is sort of like, well, I'm not in charge of my own self. I'm fine, but I exist. But do I really? Hmm. I'm here, but am I really doing any of the living? So um, yeah, we don't want to stay in our comfort zone uh, for too long. A comfort zone is a great place to retreat to and we need a little self-care. And like, yeah, I yeah. But then come back out and engage. It makes me think of the, you know, early 20th century writers talking about um, women living in gilded cages, right? Yeah. Except for yeah. now, you know, perhaps people are, are, are choosing because it's, well, it's pretty in here. It's, it's safe. Yeah. Um, you, you talk about, so um, how would I say this? Part of the, that lived, active, messy experience is, of course, making mistakes and not being perfectionistic. And, and, and it leads to um, sometimes un, um, unintended consequences, but ones that are so important, as you point out, to, to, to developing our resilience and our coping and figuring out, oh, I need to you know, turn left. Or maybe I shouldn't be a corporate attorney. Maybe I should go and help people, right? Um, I loved your little chart of, of things I'm good at, you know? Um, and part of that is you talk about the importance of radical transparency, um, for ourselves with other people around us, how it benefits us, how it benefits our community. Why is, why is this transparency? Why is this, how, and why is it such an important part of adulting? Well, we're in an era now of social and emotional learning, having been taught in K-12 environments, millennials and Gen Z have access to SEL capacities in a far greater uh, way than people our age and older do. And therefore, they are capable of knowing their own emotions, of being interested in other people's emotional reality. Um, they are, as a generation, much more respectful of the you know, in, innumerable differences uh, that comprise the human community and the human experience. Um, and so Con in co contrast to the era in which you grew up or your parents, my parents grew up where people didn't express their emotions to each other. They kind of kept everything close to the vest and, and sort of performed the part of a human who was just fine and yet drank themselves into stupors in their own houses and beat their family members. Like we are now living in a time where people have, um, have been taught how to access their feelings, their needs, their fears, and have been given permission to share them. And when we share with one another what's actually going on for us, how we feel in response to what we've just observed or what someone else has done, we can be when we can be vulnerable and share, that's how we get to greater understanding between people. Mm. That's how we get to um to resonance. That's how we get to apology. That's how we get to growth. Um, so daring to be that radical, radically transparent person um, is the way to greater connection with your fellow human beings and deeper satisfaction about uh, your own life and greater health and wellness. And the courage that it takes to go along with that. Yeah. Oh yeah, courage for sure, man. I mean, yeah. Courage is something that it kept, it, it kept popping up 
to me as a theme, um, the courage it takes for us to admit to ourselves. I mean, all these folks who are struggling for, for them to even share stories with you and, and with readers. Um, could you walk us through um, a little bit of, of beyond sort of everyday courage about kind of moral courage? <laughs> And the story you tell about um, Irshad Manji, did I pronounce that correctly? I'm from Connecticut. So we're like, the I struggle with names that aren't like John Smith and Smith John. Yeah, a um, couple things I want to say. First is I do have these 30 plus people on the page who've allowed me to try to tell their story. And I have a very close connection with them all at this point. I interview them. I listen well. I don't tape it. I take notes, I send them a draft, they let me know this is wrong, you got this wrong, and I correct it. I want folks to feel that I have treated their story with respect and tenderness. And um, what I was struck by was how in telling the stories of their own trajectory, stumbles, wins, often what I heard was, it feels so good to talk about this. Sometimes people would call back and say, wait a minute, I have to tell you more. Like Michael, who's in there, the vice president of a bank type guy who ends up calling back to say, I need to tell you about what I learned when my wife and I went through a process, a, a, a time of infertility. And I've got this CEO, this sort of corporate titan dude talking to me about infertility with emotion in his voice and the courage to your point of courage that it takes, it seems to take for a stranger to tell another stranger, Hey, this happened to me feels immense. And yet that very stranger would say, you know what? I've learned that just pulling down that facade that says, don't tell, don't tell. And instead just saying, you know what, maybe I'm going to talk about this. You know, it felt easy. There's an ease about it. We get over whatever impedes us, inhibits us, and feels like it requires courage. We realize, you know what? It doesn't actually require that much courage. I'm just being myself. You know, I was afraid that if I was my actual self with people, I might not be liked. I might not be accepted. I might be ridiculed. But then I took that chance and discovered, no, I'm more seen. I'm not alone. People get me. People have a similar experience. So, so I want to honor the all of the people who opened up and and shared their story, it does feel courageous to do so. And yet I know that they're feeling a deep satisfaction from it, which is so awesome to see. And if and I could add to that before we go back to to to, to her story about, you know, that you you make the point that for for parents who make pick up this book that, you know, I think Julie, you and I are a couple of years apart, that, that we grew up in the time of stranger danger, right? I mean, all of the stories, you know, and don't talk to strangers, Rick Springfield, you know, and 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 so this idea of connecting with people who are who are not who we don't know yet who aren't like us is um is is for all the reasons you described so valuable but in some ways not at all what a lot of people were raised with or or even more so not what they not what their parents modeled for them um yeah stranger danger has harmed us right yeah. it's just way overblown concern i mean let me be clear, if a stranger abducts and harms your child, that is probably the most or one of the most horrific things that any parent and child could go through. Let's accept that. But let's also be factual here and acknowledge those occurrences are so extremely rare. The fact that we've constructed a whole childhood to prevent that from happening 
um, is really quite an overreaction. Our children face a greater likelihood of harm by being the passenger in our cars as we drive them to these endless rounds of activities. <laughs> right? They're more likely to be physically or sexually harmed by a family member than by a stranger. Yeah. And so we've curated this whole childhood around don't talk to strangers. So you have a generation of folks who don't, which means they haven't talked to store clerks. They haven't um, uh, gone up to a stranger when they're lost on the street. They haven't just made simple chit chat, walking down a sidewalk. Hi, hi. Right. It's sort of like that person is creepy. They're looking at me. They're talking to me. No, we're just trying to be humans. I mean, I am not trying to be that old person who's like, in my day, we talked to strangers. You know, I, I realize there's that here. Um, when we get to a certain age, we just want to restore the world to the way it was in our day. That's not what I'm trying to do. Research is clear. There's a wonderful new book out called Friendship, and it talks, it's a science-based uh, book that talks about how friendship, meaningful connections with other humans that are mutually uh, uh, reliant and um, rewarding, having good friendships in our life is the determiner of our longevity, mm. of all the things that they have studied. It's not your cholesterol levels at 50. It's the strength of your relationships. So we have got to help our young learn how to meaningfully connect with humans at the level of face-to-face -face and voice-to-voice -voice and and vulnerability. Um, that is, as it turns out, an essential component of their wellness. And so this book leans heavily into, it's a chapter called start talking to strangers. I had to combat that childhood norm. Yeah. The chapter is start talking to strangers. Humans are key to your survival. I mean, I am blunt in this book. Yeah, uh, sure. <laughs> like, you know, like I care about you and you have been misled to some degree, perhaps. And a 10 second note on the science of that too, for folks who don't yet know this and haven't had the benefit of reading Julie's book and, and others, that the dominant manifestation of anxiety is avoidance. So if I'm anxious of people who don't look like me, I won't talk, I'll avoid talking to them. But the more we avoid, the more that anxiety grows. And so you get this reinforcing cycle of I don't, I'm, I'm, I'm too nervous to talk to those people. So I won't talk to them. So I become more nervous about them and on and on we go. And, and then we wonder why, gosh, our democracy feel, feels a little, a little afraid. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for being there to provide the science. People look ahead. <laughs> Listen to Ned. I'm a former corporate lawyer and university dean who has a lot of opinions. Um, and, and a lot of a lot of wisdom. So let me let me let me push you back to to the moral courage because uh, because uh, um, I keep I keep pulling you pulling you astray. Um, well, I guess we get we're at a good point right there, right? The talking um, about hard things, right? This is where we are in 2021, right? Talking about hard things is hard, um, and what. Oh, she, she's pulling a book, folks. I'm, I'm doing a play-by-play. -play. She's pulling a book off her bookshelf. I'm pulling Earshaw's book. Oh, yeah. oh, my God. oh my gosh. I've never it's seen the cover. An Incredible Conversation for Difficult Times by Irshad Manji. So you want to talk about Irshad and her, her courage. So Irshad Manji, um, it's funny that you said you weren't sure how to pronounce her name because you're from wherever you're from. <laughs> um, Rural she, Connecticut. Born in Uganda. Mm. Um, but was exiled. Uh, Idi Amin said he was kicking out anybody who wasn't African. And her father was Indian. Her mother was Egyptian. So I think the fact of her mother being from Egypt, which of course is in Africa, um, 
was not uh, did not overcome the fact that they were Asian, non-African. So they were exiled to Vancouver, Canada. Mm-hmm. So this incredible human um, speaks with a Canadian accent. <laughs> and so I hear her say her name. It sort of makes me chuckle because she sounds like a Canadian person trying to say her own name. And of course, she has the right to say her name the way she wants to say it. Uh, and the way she's grown up saying it. And she says it a lot like you say it. Um, so <laughs> anyway, um, Irshad is an amazing leader. Um, her life trajectory has been a violent father, uh, kicked out of the madrasa when she was 14 because she was asking too many questions about Islam and then discovered she's queer and trying to reconcile being queer with being a Muslim and a thinker and her life's work is about helping us dwell in these spaces of complexity, particularly complex identities and the seeming conflict between different belief systems. She hmm. is so adept at helping people find common ground through a respectful listening. Um, for her, one of the greatest acts of courage in conversation with other humans is to very respectfully when you're disagreeing with somebody or you you are about to engage with someone with whom you know you already disagree is to say to them you know what i'd like to hear where you're coming from i'd like to know you better i'd like to understand you better basically to let them go first and she says a lot of people think that's ceding your power it's like you know oh you go first she said the greatest power is letting the other, is having the confidence that I'm going to let this other person go first. I'm going to demonstrate to this other person that I have respect for you. I'm going to listen. I'm going to actively listen, reflect back to you what you've said. So you feel heard, you know, that I'm respecting you. That's setting up a container, you know, in which I can have confidence that then I have a greater chance of being heard as well. It's the only way And um, so she's brilliant. She's at NYU and she's got this great thing called the moralcourageproject.com. She teaches people how to have these different difficult conversations, teaches students in the K-12 environment and college students. You explained that strategy so clearly and so concretely. And I'm thinking of um, like it's a superpower, right? Or a Jedi mind trick, right? Yeah, except... You don't do it simply for the utilitarian reason. Like, thank you for pointing right, that out. I'm going to let them go first because I have to. Like, that might be how you first come to it. Like, I know I should let them go first, air quotes. But what you come to discover as you inhabit this practice is the value. I am actually treating this person with respect. That is a good thing. I am actually actively listening to this person because I want to. That is a good thing. And I'm confident that if I do those things, there's a far greater likelihood that I will receive those things in return. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's effective, right? I mean, you know, because if we're not, rather than trying to exert power over people, we would like to think that we could exert, exert you know, this is for parents and kids to exert influence, right? You know, that, that I have something useful to say that I'd like other folks to maybe consider and maybe they'll move an inch my direction. Um, but starting by... by Moving in their direction as well, at least from a listening perspective, I, I like it. Um, the intentionality with which you have diverse voices of, of every, I mean, of, of kind of almost everything is, can you, can you talk about that for a little bit? Because the, the, the takeaway that I had, um, 
is that oftentimes, um, if I'm a person, if I'm a young person reading this book, um, and I'm, and I'm, 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 I'm open to this advice, but I'm also maybe a little skeptical, maybe a little wary, maybe just because I'm, you know, my parents have always, they come at me with advice and I, and I sort of am reflexively defensive because I've been talked at too much. I, I kept having the voice of young people saying, but you don't understand, you don't know what it's like. And with, with so many experiences of things going well and things going hard and just, 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 the, the, you're so thoughtful about the voice that you had here and the challenges. It, it felt to me like such a, a way that we, we would diffuse that sense of, but you don't understand because I can't fathom someone reading this book and not feeling themselves represented in this book. You know, if, if not, if, if not in many, many of the stories, was that, was that part of the design of the book? 100% intentional. And here's my why. I sit here with you as a black biracial queer 53 year old, uh, married to a cisgender bisexual man. Straight white guy here with no hair in case people are wondering who I am. Right. And I appreciate that you said that actually, because whiteness and straightness usually goes unmentioned on the page. And as a reader of color, I have therefore been uh, subjected to writing all my life where it's character A is mentioned, character B, character C, character D who has brown skin. <laughs> and I'm told, okay, this author thinks I assume something about characters A, B, and C, uh, which I'm going to take a look at this author. It's a white author. I'm going to assume they are not naming race because they think white is normal and doesn't have to be named. Mm. And it is time for us to stop otherizing everybody considered not the norm in mainstream, I'm doing air quotes, America. Okay, we are done with that. We all matter, right? That's what everyone says. We all matter. Well, guess what? We don't actually all matter and we won't actually all matter until all of us are actually represented equally on the page. So let's name whiteness and straightness, but let's also name blackness and Asianness and queerness and gender fluidness. Okay, so I have written this book with these voices of other people attempting to say, look, I'm not an authority on adulting. Nobody is. If you're an adult, you're doing <laughs> awesome. So this isn't like, listen to me, I'm the sage on the mountain. This is, hey, I've compiled a bunch of really different examples of people doing this adulting thing. And I have been deliberate in ensuring that such folks are broadly reflective of the racial and ethnic diversity of America, um, the gender spectrum, the sexual orientation spectrum. Um, I've got poor folks, working class folks, middle class, upper middle class, and wealthy folks. I've got people who were highly educated and hardly educated and everything in between. I've got folks with mental health challenges. And I don't just have sort of the mental health <laughs> asterisk, okay? Right. Like, for those of you who are struggling, blah, 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 like see page 300. No, I speak in a manner, I've tried to at least in the book, throughout Every chapter that says, oh, hey, if you're dealing with social anxiety, what I'm suggesting you do here regarding connecting with strangers might be really hard. And I, mm. and I, I honor that. You know, I am normalizing the fact of, um, of everybody mattering by just referring constantly to specific examples of every different type of human there is. I, I work hard not to use gendered language or to make gendered assumptions, which is really hard in English uh, for a lot of people to deal with. Um, 
And um, so all of that is very, very intentional. And I hope that, you know, I, I'm sure I will hear from somebody saying you, you left me out. You didn't, I didn't clean <laughs> in your book and I will feel badly, but I want folks to know that I have made a very deliberate effort to be very broadly inclusive um, of the myriad, myriad identities and life paths that people tread. And yeah. I hope that everybody will find that some story resonates deeply with them for some reason. For example, I've got a white, male, straight, Christian, Republican, military guy in the book, which is awesome. And what part of the book is he in? Take good care of yourself. He's got bipolar disorder. And he talks about the harrowing mania hmm. he has experienced and what that has done to him and his career and how he has coped with that. So um, he's not in the book because he's a white, a straight white male conservative Christian. He's in the book for his bipolar. But I do want to be sure I got some straight white male Christian military people in the book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. People need to see that, like, okay, people like me are in here. You know, at some point I realized I don't have any Texans in this book. You can't write a book and not have a Texan. It's the largest, second largest state, you know? And so I went searching for Texans with good stories. <laughs> of course, many, um, you know? Thank you for explaining that um, so eloquently in a way that I clearly struggled to um, because the, the, well, the takeaways for me seem to be twofold. One, that in telling all these diverse stories, um, it makes people feel represented. And, and so again, the, the, she's not talking past me or around me or ignoring me, but also for, you know, with my lived experience, which is my lived experience, seeing and hearing all these other stories, it broadens, I guess, broadens normal. Is that a fair way to say this? I have, I have a friend who's a, a singer songwriter and she has a song called Normal's Just a Setting on the Washing Machine. Yeah. So I, I found it so useful because to, you know, challenges with mental health, which I've had in, in, in my family and, 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 and growing up with, with not enough money, which was part of my background and now being, you know, in a very different place. It is, it is so interesting to see and hear all these different stories, even just to be reminded as a, as a reader that there's so many parts to my life. If someone tried to define me as a straight white male and say that they therefore know who I am. Yeah. I'd be, you know, I wouldn't like that any more than, than you would like you know, reduced to, you know, a, a person of color who plays this role in someone's particular story. Right. Well, I am trying to elucidate the complex, beautiful richness of difference we possess in this human community in America. And I think, as any good writer knows, the more specific you are with your details, the more everyone can relate. So I think what should happen is, People see like, oh, wow, this is a poor white kid from Appalachia who's got this incredible work ethic. I didn't grow up like that, but boy, do I relate to everything he's saying. Mm -hmm. That's open. That's the first story in there. Yeah. You know? And, oh, there's this uh, lawyer who's uh, trans, queer, an, a transracial adoptee from China raised by evangelical Christians in Massachusetts, and they are doing the hard work of helping kids, mostly black and brown kids with mental health challenges, um, survive a schooling system and a law enforcement 
system that sees them as problematic. And there are going to be people who have that social justice bent within them who may have nothing in common identity-wise with Lydia, but who resonate so much with Lydia's work. And so there's a lot of cross-pollination and cross, you know intersections of possibility here. You know, one of the stories, Ned, is squarely a Black Lives Matter story. Um, there's a story of an African-American kid who grew up in foster care, who made his way up and out of a really tough set of circumstances in Connecticut and gets to college at Tufts. There's a fraternity party. There's a fight. The cops are called. They come and they surround him, guns drawn. And he talks about his rage, you know, at how he was treated. And, you know, he survived that. Nobody shot him. Okay, which sounds doesn't always happen. Clarify, but like we have to. And then a professor mentors him around next steps, and he ends up having a life that is transformed by his ability um, to love himself and um, um, and and learn at the feet of masters in Africa, in many countries, and in Asia. He learns about meditation and breathing, and ultimately becomes a health and wellness practitioner who helps other people heal from their anger, from their pain, from all that was wrong with their upbringing, um, all that was privileged with their upbringing, all that was hard about, the, he's this, uh, he's, he's, he's in the story of, uh, he's in the chapter when the shit hits the fan, um, how to cope, but yeah. he comes back in the chapter on use your super, unleash your superpowers, mindfulness, kindness, and gratitude, because he is a mindfulness practitioner, uh, uh, without, I mean, he's just an amazing human. So ultimately his is a story of, transcending the life that America had in mind for this poor little black boy. And his story is just one of 30 plus stories. So it's no more important or no less important, but I have put it in there because let there be no person who escapes 2020, let alone 2021 thinking these black lives matter incidents are just sort of one-off things. And if you just behave right, you're not going to have difficult encounters with the police as a black or Brown person. So that's a very intentional piece that I've included. Um, and I hope folks who haven't lived that experience will feel a lot of empathy. What's oh, incredible. I mean, I mean, first, wow. I mean, it, it, I mean, it's his experience is astonishing. Your telling of the story is astonishing. And we not only get that lesson, but we use this experience of a very difficult experience to then raise two incredibly important tools of, oh, we're going back to adulting, right? Of superpowers of mindfulness and gratitude, right? And also about how incredibly powerful mentors are, right? Because we know, I mean, you, you know, you and your experience as a, a, a dean at, at Stanford know how incredibly important mentors are. People, and you talk about your mentor, Sally, right? Of helping you find your way, helping you find your voice. What makes mentors or, or other connectors distinct from you know, us as parents or other adults who are, who are trying to help, help folks along the way. You know, thank you for raising mentors. It's an example of a topic that does come up in the relationship chapter, but is embedded throughout. Um, you discover through these stories that there was somebody and the research says just one caring adult, no matter how challenging your upbringing and circumstances in family life and schooling, just one caring adult can make a difference in the life of a child, can be the difference. And so uh, what is a mentor? A mentor is a human who 
um, usually is older than you, farther down the path of life, a little bit more experience, uh, maybe a lot more experience, cares about you, rooting for you, believes in you, you feel completely seen and accepted. It's sort of all of the love and care of a parent without any of the responsibility. Um, <laughs> they're the people when you're thinking, do I have any mentors? It's that teacher who you want to go back and visit from high school because they always just saw you as you were and you knew you mattered to them. It's mattering, um, you know, which we feel in our bodies and can see in the eyes. Um, we can feel it in the workplace. We can feel it in the education system. Um, it's that person who was just always in your corner, just delighted to hear from you, delighted to learn of your progress, happy to provide some advice and guidance, sometimes more deliberately, sometimes more passively. Yeah, we all need mentors hmm. and we should all be mentors. The older and more experienced we get, that's precisely the sort of thing to pay forward. So well said. You talk about your experience and the importance of finding your why as being a more useful recommendation than follow your passion. Can you spend a little time helping folks under, under talk about your experience or anyone, you know, really, uh, and why, um, why, why that's helpful to folks? Well, I'm pretty anti-find your passion. So I, uh, because I was a college dean, because I live in Silicon Valley, Palo Alto, California, have really grown quite weary of the overuse of find your passion, kid, because it's all about find your passion in time to impress a college admission dean on January 1st of your senior year. Oh, actually December 1st, because we think you should, apply, I mean, November 1st, whatever it is, early app deadline. Like find your passion has become the most utilitarian thing. And what I think is true is most 17 and 18 year olds have not found their passion by the fall of their senior year, other than the person in their math class, one row over, you know, their actual like passion. What am I going to do with my life? Come on. How many people our age knew when we were in the fall of our senior year, what our passion was? Most of us didn't. Why are we doing this to kids? Find your passion quick because someone else needs to know about it. Give me a break. Passion <laughs> is a deeply personal, intimate knowing we have about ourselves as we live life and make bad choices. Our inner self says, aha, no, we don't like that. What we really wish we could do is this. Often we discover our passion in the face of misery. Oh, this was a bad choice. What I really want to do is that. So um, I'm not anti-passion. I'm anti-find your passion in time to impress others in high school. And I think I was just talking to somebody on a different podcast the other day. The guy interviewing me was 60-something. His producer is a college student who asked me about this, about this concept of passion. And I said, I think you've been duped. <laughs> oh, yes, passion matters, but it's passion, path, purpose. Who are you? Why are you on the planet? It takes some time to figure that out. And that's 100% okay. So find your why, which comes out first in the story of Ananda Day, mm -hmm. originally from Montana, then raised in uh, Raleigh, Chapel Hill area of North Carolina, um, graduate of uh, UNC Chapel Hill, um, and went on to do a gap year with Global Citizen Year before doing, you know, before going to college. Um, Ananda talks about finding your why. If you have a sense of why something matters to you, um, the, 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 the why behind 
um, your interests, your choices, um, that becomes your rock, your true north. It becomes the stabilizing function that anchors you so that whatever new choices, decisions, sets of problems you're trying to solve arise, your why is always there to kind of keep you aligned with who you are and who you want to be. It's another way of saying find your passion, but I just think find your passion has become a cliche and is underserving young people. I think it's great. And I, I love, was it, was it, she, she became a writer, if I remember correctly, with the, the cricket sucker? Yeah. <laughs> Maybe yeah. The most- she said, I realized I'm not leading a life where I'm going to be that old lady that has cool stories to tell. Cause all I'm doing is like going to my next math class and worrying about college. And I'm closed off from people because my mother left us when I was tiny and I feel responsible. Like all of this comes out. And she says, I realize I'm not connecting to people. I'm not having those kinds of relationships that would lead to the interesting stories I would want to be able to tell as a grandma one day. I need to start having interesting experiences. I'm going to go to the science museum and get a cricket sucker. (laughs) (laughs) I've heard cricket suckers, but now it's in this book. I I was trying to picture just like what an experience that would be. But but I also kept thinking, I kept thinking, here's this young woman who's starting her life trying to figure out how do I tell stories that give meaning and voice to other people's stories in ways that are meaningful to me. And I thought, oh, I know somebody who does that, Julie Lithcott Haynes. <laughs> so I just, I thought that I just, I love that so much. And uh, um, I'm wondering if you could, it, it maybe you, you end, well, I forget what chapter it is about character and yeah. you tell the story about character and your mom in her broad Yorkshire dialect. And this, I just, I howled. I've done my best to memorize the story because I intend to use it as often as I can with attribution. Um, But I don't want to take your words or appropriate your mouth. Can you tell the story for folks just because I think it's so lovely. It is lovely. Thank you for noticing that. And let me tell you the audio book for those. Oh yeah, you did that. I recorded my own audio and I said to the producer, hey, I've translated this into American English on the page, but I got my mother, she, we all live together. She could come and read it in broad Yorkshire and then we could have me translate. Like that's the added bonus of audio. So in the audiobook, my mother actually says it in broad Yorkshire, which I can't possibly do, uh, which I just think is amazing. I'd love watching my 82 year old mother <laughs> with headphones on a microphone recording this story. So yeah, I will gladly share. This is from chapter four, Be Good. Unlock, so the chapter, be good, unlock a major achievement. And it's in the subheading, Wisdom from the Elders. And I say, for thoughts on cultivating a good character, I want to set the stage with a bit of folklore my mother likes to recite. Mom is an 82-year-old white British lady from a region of the north of England called Yorkshire, near the border with Scotland. That's where folks, including my great-grandfather, mined the earth and spoke and still speak a dialect that the more wealthy and educated Brits almost literally can't understand and make fun of. So while she tells this story in her broad Yorkshire dialect, I've put it into American English for you. The setting is an old man sitting in a chair on the outskirts of his village, whose job is to monitor who is coming and going and interrogate any strangers who approach. The old man sat on a roadside seat, solemn and deep in thought, thinking about the ways of man with man and changes time had wrought. 
when up comes a stranger chap, a man who'd come to town, an outsider, it was plain to see, taking his first look around. What sort of folks live here, asked he, and the old man replied, what sort of folks are you from, said the stranger with a sigh, suspicious, narrow, mean as muck, and most unfair, I fear. Then friend, you'll find, was his reply, same type of folks live here. The stranger left, the old man sat that day and then some more, when up there came another man, just like the time before. What sort of folks live here, asked he. And the old man says again, what sort of folks are you from? And the stranger then began, glad you asked. I miss them so. It's been so far I've come. Finest in world, a champion lot, good neighbors, everyone. Beamed the old man's face like the risen sun and stole to his eye a tear. Then friend, you'll find, was his reply. Same type of folks live here. Mm. Jesus, that just gets me. <laughs> me, me too. <laughs> uh, uh, well, here's my takeaway from that. One, oh, lovely folks in, in in Yorkshire, England. Yeah. <laughs> you come from good, good, good stock, as they would say, Julie. Uh, and the third point is that now everyone has to not only buy the book so they can mark it up, uh, but you also have to buy the audio because we all have to hear Julie's mom. <laughs> It's so cool, that broad Yorkshire. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for giving me that opportunity. It's, um, I don't know why it moves us so. Oh, it's so good. Here, what is it? The humanity, the, the truth, you know, that if you're feeling that the people around you are kind and loving and you like them and so on, you know, that your attitude as people say, is your altitude. And I say in the book, it's not entirely that. There is the prejudice of others and bias and so on that can impede our progress. But short of intentional harm perpetrated by another human against us, which can happen on the yeah, basis yeah, yeah, yeah. of innumerable identities, <clears throat> we have a lot of control over, how we. if we work at it, we can be in charge of ourselves, how we interact with others, what our mindset is, what our set point is, about how we see the world. And I think that is a lovely encapsulation of adulting, you know, go explore, talk to strangers. Um, and um, if you can approach the world with an optimism and a kindness and a willingness to um, see and love and accept humans as they are, you will find that you get that in return. Well, Julie Lithcott Hames, I am so grateful for your time. And most of all, I'm grateful um, for your thinking, your humanity, your passion, and for this book. Your turn, How to Be an Adult, out now. Go get it, read it, grow with it, learn with it, give it to everyone you know, give it to everyone you like, give it to people you don't like. We're all going to benefit from this book. Thanks for being with us. My pleasure. What, what fun this was. I appreciate you. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Thank you for listening to Prep Talks. Please subscribe to us for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time. Thank you.